This program is brought to you by Resonance 104.4 FM. If you like what you hear and want to support our work, please make a donation at fundraiser.resonance.fm. They're calling again. Good afternoon. You're listening to Suite 212, the show that puts the arts in a social, cultural and historical context here on London's Resonance 104.4 FM. I'm your host, Tom Overton, and I'm delighted to say I'm joined in the studio today by Dr. Clive James Nwonka. Hi, Clive. Hi. Clive is fellow in film studies uh, in the Department of Sociology at the London School of Economics. His research mixes film and TV studies, sociology, politics and cultural studies, and looks at the intersections of contemporary realism and film policy, with particular interest in black British film, international cinemas, and American independent film. He wrote his PhD in film studies at Brunel University, looking at the relationship between new labour cultural policies and social realism, and then he spent two years as a postdoctoral research assistant at the AHRC Community Filmmaking and Cultural Diversity Project, led by Professor Sarita Malik at Brunel University. He's taught at Brunel, Birkbeck and the University of Greenwich, and he's just launched an important and fascinating new course at LSE called White Screens, Black Images, the Sociology of Black Cinema on the MSC Culture and Society. Clive has also consulted on diversity policy for the Department of Digital, Culture, Media and Sport and the British Film Institute and on visual representations of race for Facebook. Both of those things, the course and the broader question of diversity, are some of the themes of today's show. But first, because uh, I know Clive was at the recent London Film Festival, I wanted to get us started by asking what you'd seen there, Clive, and if you had any recommendations or indeed critiques for our listeners of those films. <laughs> Thanks. Um, well, one of the best films um, I saw was actually the last day of filming screenings. Uh, it was a film called If Bill Street Could Talk um, by the amazing director of Moonlight, Barry Jenkins. Mm. Um, it's a fantastic film. Um, it was the highlight of the festival for me. Mm. Um, it's got this amazing, luscious score to it as well. Um, it's of course an adaptation of the book by James Baldwin um, and looks at um, a relationship um, in the context of race in America, family disputes, policing as well. But with this film, um, Jenkins never allows the politics of race and police brutality to actually devour the main arc of the story, which is simply a love story a story about belonging, acceptance, perseverance as well. Mm. So I'm not entirely sure when it's coming out. I think it may be either December or kind of January, but that mm. was an absolute highlight at the festival for me. Okay, you, who's the soundtrack boy? You can um, he refers to various um, classic um, black American kind of songs. Yeah. There is one scene, I won't spoil it for people, <laughs> but um, he uses um, an amazing song by Nina Simone, um, All That I Ask, yeah. when they're around a dinner table just cooking food. And it completely encapsulates what the film's about, about mm. loving, about kind of giving, about kind of sharing. So there's loads of references to kind of classic black American kind of music in the film. Because mm. it's kind of been a, a kind of Baldwin, you know, resurg- well, no, resurgence is the right word, but an mm. increased sort of focus on Baldwin in the last sort of couple of years, I think. Yeah, I mean, of course, there was a documentary that came out a couple of years ago, which is fantastic. Have you seen that? By yeah, the way? yeah. What did you think? Uh, I, it was, I think I was sort of slightly aspects of it were amazing I'm sort of trying to remember now um, uh, but I, I kind of felt slightly disappointed by some of it it seemed a little bit sort of what I haven't I, re- I, got, I realized I have the the book some of them made a book version of it um, mm. and I haven't sort of have you, have you have you seen that I've actually not read the book now no but I think it's I think it's a, a I'm not entirely sure because I realize I have it but I haven't read it but it's a, a sort of a printed version of the film I'm not, mm. I wonder how that r- works what, what did you think of it I thought the film was amazing, um, a very timely film. Yeah. Um, of course, you can draw correlations between what has been explored um, in the film, the historical information um, mm. alongside what's happening in America right now. Mm. So for those kind of reasons, it makes the film quite a, a poignant mm. um, account of kind of black America and the study of a kind of paragon mm. of um, the fight for equality. So um, I thought it was a very good film. Mm. Um, in addition, I also saw um, the film Roma by um, Alfonso Cuarón, which was a huge cinematic experience. I mean, yeah. he's an amazing filmmaker anyway, and makes these kind of grand, luscious films. But Roma was a very, very particular 
examination of the experiences of an immigrant kind of worker mm. in Mexico in the kind of 70s mm. um, in this very kind of um, upper middle class kind of family mm. and her experiences of being both seen as a domestic worker but also being very, very much embedded in a family dynamic. Mm. Um, a very, very kind of, um, I think, life-affirming film, I would say. So that was also a highlight as well. Any, any others? Any others? Oh, yes, of course. Um, a very, very funny film called Sorry to Bother You, yeah. um, which you may have seen the posters around on the tube in various kind of places. It's a film about a African-American call center worker who adopts a supposedly white voice <laughs> to um, be more successful in his, kind of, um, in his job. And um, through that, it kind of goes into a very metaphysical, slightly allegorical account of race, blackness, identity, but also a critique of capitalism as well. Yeah. There's narratives around the unionization of kind of workers and collectivity against individualism. Mm. So it's a heavily layered film, but done in a very, very kind of comedic and humorous way. There's, I mean, this is <laughs> kind of jumping ahead a bit, but that, just talking there about uh, a call centre worker putting on a different voice for the sake of the phone, uh, sort of reminded me of uh, some of the scenes in Black Klansman. Like, uh, which is uh, where which you know, derives comedy from the same sort of source. I mean, maybe this is jumping ahead to an, another thing, but uh, I I know that recently you I saw online that you gave uh, a, a sort of introduction to Black Klansman, mm -hmm. uh, and I was I wondered if uh, sort of in the context of what we've just been talking about, you wanted to kind of share some of uh, the the arguments that you might have drawn on in that in that uh, what you thought of Black Klansman, basically. Sure. Yeah. Well. <laughs> Basically, the screening was um, held at the Curzon Victoria, a yeah. really, really kind of nice new cinema that's opened. And it was part of the LSC's celebration of um, Black History Month 2018 yeah. um, by the US Centre and the Equality and Diversity Initiative at um, LSC. Mm. And we had loads of students and members of staff involved, and it was just a fantastic cinematic gathering. Mm. both for the film but also discussions of the film as well and it polarised opinion uh, mm. which is what Spike these films do yeah. <laughs> but um, for me um, I found it a heavily layered film but also a quite convoluted film mm. to actually understand what the meaning was I mean I guess at a denotive level it's a story about a young African-American police officer who becomes the first black African-American police officer to be involved in the Colorado kind of State Police and who goes undercover to expose the Ku Klux Klan. Mm. Now, on that level, you can make loads of kind of connections between what they're exploring there and contemporary America now in terms of race, policing, equality, the rise of kind of white supremacist um, perspectives as well. But also, at a more cognitive level, we're also thinking about political ideology. And for me, it seems that Spike's trying to advocate liberalism mm. as a response to what he's kind of seeing um, in America and around mm. the world right now. So we have this character who's the paragon of policing and working within the kind of system, but also has these awakenings about a black political ideology. Mm. So there's these kind of tensions between both his identity as a police officer and a very, very kind of white system mm. and black radicals as well, mm. who he also infiltrates. So for me, the film casts quite a Manichian account of both the Ku Klux Klan and policing. Mm. And for me, at times, I wondered how the film was trying to construct meaning and what effect it wanted on the audience. Mm. Because on the one hand, we have people advocating extra-parliamentary activity mm. in the Black Radicals. But on the other hand, the character is kind of wrestling with this idea that he can be a police officer within the kind of state mm. and pursue racial equality through these kind of means. So we have a character who is kind of wrestling with this kind of um, duology, mm. but doesn't see any kind of issue with him being both a policeman and a black policeman mm. in that particular system. So he doesn't kind of see these things as, you know, some form of kind of dichotomy. Mm. That for me is interesting in terms of what the film was trying to kind of say mm. about the idea that a man or anyone can have these weird kind of duopolies again. Mm. 
within two contrasting kind of systems. Yeah. I thought the strangest sort of, well, I mean, there were many strange things about it, but the, the sort of the scene where he's intercutting the KKK rally with, uh, with the sort of uh, Harry Belafonte giving, you know, sort of giving that astonishingly powerful sort of like talk mm. was really, really, I found that very, very, I mean, sort of <laughs> problematic might be the word, the word. It was, but I actually found that scene the most moving and poignant of the whole film. Yeah. I mean, when I speak to people about this, they often cite the images towards the end of the film uh, with the images of um, the Charlottesville riots and the cars yeah. going through the Kansas City, obviously killing people. Um, however, for me, as poignant and harrowing as those scenes were, for me, when you see Harry talking and reflecting back on the lynching of a black man mm. and describing quite viscerally um, the effects, the procedures mm. um, around other black people uh, being radicalised by his kind of discussion. For me, that really kind of hit home, mm. I guess, the kind of immediacy yeah. of what he was describing, its relevance to contemporary situation. Um, equally, because the film takes on a quite, I wouldn't say comedic, I'd say more humorous tone, mm. but that drags us back down to the reality yeah. of white supremacy, of his impacts, his indexes. Um, and essentially the reality of white supremacy. Yeah. So for me, I would find that particular scene much more connected to, I guess, the ideology and impact that Spike's looking for as opposed to those kind of scenes towards the end, which as striking as they are, I'm not quite convinced that the film, given its tonalities, can carry the weight mm. of that political message alongside a three or four minute kind of clip of what happened in Charlottesville. Yeah. I felt that was quite a crude way of annexing them together to kind of create a broader kind of message. Yeah, I'd, 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 I'd agree with that. I suppose, I mean, I wouldn't for a moment doubt that the, you know, the power of that Harry, Harry Belafonte scene is you know, just really astonishing. It, it was just the, the way it was, the cutting almost, the way that the, the, and that kind of tonal mix uh, of it never quite settles on something. And then at the end, you kind of have this, several kind of false ends where you think it's you think the film's over and then there's there's the the Charlottesville bit and then there's the sort of it almost <clears throat> I almost felt like it need, it needed someone to kind of help him edit it mm. <laughs> like in kind of certain things kind of sh shaped in a different way I think but equally it's also in constant dialogue with the history of cinema and race mm. so for instance in that scene just before the Charlottesville clips you see the central character and the Andrew Davis type character mm. moving kind of forward with kind of guns in their hands and a very kind of black exploitation yeah. kind of feel to it. But then equally, you have scenes where they're talking about birth of a nation, for instance. Yeah. At the beginning, they're also talking about, you know, Gone with the Wind. Yeah. And these films that have historically been kind of used as a way of racializing kind of people mm. or more overtly as a recruiting tool for the Ku Klux Klan. Yeah. So what I think Spike's saying in there is that how cinema has been used historically as an ideological tool. Yeah. Um, I think that's another underlying message in the kind of film. And um, for me, a very, very powerful one. That's uh, an excellent point then to move on to discussing the course, perhaps. <laughs> uh, also because of the sort of like uh, some of the issues there. Of, um, yeah, because that's we're coming there from a kind of like a, a US a US film context into into the the course, um, which I mentioned at the beginning. White screen, white screens, black images, the sociology of black cinema. Um, which uh, just to kind of read a little bit from the from the the course description is the aim of the course is to consider the politics of race in contemporary Black British and American cinema and visual practice, and reflect on almost sixty years of Black cinema vis-a-vis -vis the social institute institutional textual cultural and political shifts that have occurred during the period. So we've we've been we've raised some of that already. Mm -hmm. So um, maybe one place to kind of uh, start sort of thinking about about that course and what's what's on it is. Um, what is black film? Kind of like, what's the you know, how how do you define that? Or that is a question that's been pursued by academics, filmmakers for decades, and I've still not actually arrived at that kind of conclusive um, answer to that. Um, it can mean a variety of things. I mean, one crude definition would be films that have been made by black people that somehow depict or capture a particular black experience. 
Now, what you mean by black experience is the heavy kind of loaded question that maybe needs to be exploded, which I'm hoping the course will do that. Mm. Um, there are many scholars in academia who've been trying to explode uh, questions of kind of blackness for many, many years. You go back to kind of Stuart Hall in the cultural studies days, mm. um, who really exploded that kind of term. Um, I guess in the 80s and 70s, black was a political term. Mm. It's where you stood in in relation to institutions that were predominantly white. So you could be Asian and be considered to be kind of black in that very, very kind of all encompassing political terms. Um, I think now um, it means something different. Mm. Um, it can be very much about ethnicity. Um, in the context of cinema and film, um, the course is very much looking at films that somehow grapple with the black experience, mm. be it black America or black Britain. So it's kind of an odyssey. It mm. takes the student into a historicization, but also a contemporary analysis of blackness, both in its American and British context, mm. through the lens of film. Mm. And within that lens, you look at a range of different issues, issues of gender, issues of class, issues of interracial connectivity and relationships and integration, particular kind of movements and moments in both those um, nations' histories. Um, so for that reason, I think blackness or the black film is one that is concerned or has an agenda that tries to get to the very marrow and make insertions at what it means to be black, what it means to experience everything that comes with being kind of black in a particular mm. kind of nationhood. That's the agenda of the course. Excellent. Um, what's, and where does the the, 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 the title is, is itself a reference, I think? The title is interesting. Um, White screens slash black images. So the title is a kind of homage to the um, black American scholar James Sned. Now, um, James Sned uh, was an American intellectual, um, a film scholar, a historian, um, who wrote an amazing book that was released posthumously um, in um, the early 90s. He actually passed away in 1989 at a very, very young age. And um, his book, White Screens, Black Images, was one of the books I read in my kind of PhD that really opened my eyes to the ideologies that Hollywood was using to essentially kind of make race and kind of craft blackness. Mm. Um, so he looks at all the different ideologies, identities that produces various types of kind of white supremacist discourse within kind of Hollywood kind of film between 1915 and 1985. And um, it's an amazing book, but also one that is still quite obscure in the various pedagogies of British film studies. And I thought this would be an amazing opportunity to actually resurrect the book, mm. um, to share the book with new audiences and emerging scholars and students who are interested in kind of black cinema. But equally, I thought it'd be good to recognize that next year is actually the 30th anniversary of James passing. Mm. And I thought it'd be a very good thing to actually just recognize that here is a scholar whose work is still underappreciated, I think, mm. and needs some kind of acknowledgement. Mm. And what better way than to kind of name a course after yeah. one of those famous books. Absolutely. Well, um, always after after the show on the, the Twitter account, uh, on the Sweet212 Twitter account, Sweet underscore 212, we um, try and tweet out links to sort of um, texts and uh, sort of films as well discussed. So we'll, 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 put, we'll put one of that on so people, so listeners can get the, uh, get the, the name of the, of the book. Uh, you're listening to Sweet212 on Resonance 104.4 FM. Uh, I'm joined in the studio today by Clive and Wonka talk, uh, talking around issues around uh, his course White Screens, Black Images, the Sociology of Black Cinema and all of the attendant issues around it. Um, are there, how, how many, so just to kind of the practicalities of the course, like um, what, who, who can take it? Kind of like what's the, it's, it's part of, the, it's a sociology, uh, set, it's, a, it's a course on the sociology MA, uh, um, MSc at LSE. Uh, are there are there other similar sort of um, courses in the in sort of UK institutions, or is there well, is this fairly out on its own? Or? It's interesting because um, when um, I launched the course, um, I was on Twitter and I just pulled out that this is a new course happening that's available to students um, on the MSc in Culture and Society yeah. uh, within Sociology, but also is available to students in Medium Comms, but. 
I've had interest from students from the departments of management and psychology and gender mm. and other ones, which is amazing because what you want is a kind of composite of different perspectives. Mm. Because ultimately, film is also about interpretation. Mm. And um, one's interpretation is always kind of based on their position and background experiences. Mm. Those can be obviously kind of gendered, racialized, classed, anything. Mm. So what I was looking for was a heterogeneity, mm. a perspective to kind of bring into the kind of classroom, into the learning environment. So, but um, in terms of other courses, um, so I put out um, a kind of high on Twitter to kind of um, my academic kind of circle, mm. mention the course and ask, are there any other courses doing this mm. around the UK? Because Black's film studies is still very obscure within the film studies canon mm. more generally. And I guess we're trying to kind of connect with other courses, mm. other academics doing similar things. Um, there wasn't many. Mm. Um, I think someone mentioned a course at King's College London that looks mm. at ethnicity and kind of race in America. Um, there is another course that has run in the past at Birmingham City University mm. that looks at media in terms of race. Um, there is a course at Goldsmiths on mm. the MA and uh, Meeting Comms that also kind of looks at race as well. Mm. But in terms of race and film, particularly the Black British experience and the Black American experience, there's very, very few and far between courses. Mm. It's an excellent thing to be starting with. <laughs> um, so this obviously comes within the context of uh, the sort of like the rest, the rest of your research, which I'd sort of briefly sort of uh sort of some mentioned at the beginning and uh one of the things of yours i read recently which i thought was really excellent and i think feeds also into the 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 films and uh sort of the indic indicative reading list that you put on the course which again we'll we'll tweet out so people can have a look at uh and one of the things i read uh, recently was um called uh, just just get something black made uh, cultural discourses of pra and practices of institutionalized diversity in the uk film sector which was a collaboration with sarita malik i think mm. uh and i thought that would be a really interesting thing to talk about in the show because you, you lay out um a recent history of government policy towards film uh very clearly and incisively i think this is in the uk uh in a way which i think might be interesting for listeners to hear especially because it intersects Kind of with some of the conversations I had a couple of shows ago with uh, the geographer, um, urban geographer Ollie Mould, um, the way he talks about the way uh, New Labour sought to harness the idea of creativity and sort of what were essentially marketing strategies such as Cool Britannia, uh, in his his book is against creativity, uh, and it sort of looks at that sort of ninety seven sort of moment around there, uh, and he's very good on um, the kind of. The, the the subject the specific kind of actually very narrow sort of a narrowly constituted person this ideology is imagining is doing the creativity which tends to, as we discussed then tends to be an able-bodied white male mm -hmm. uh and so i wondered if you could sort of like uh explain a bit of the context you give in the piece for that that moment in the 90s because it, you kind of build towards it's uh the kind of the scent the kind of the center point of the of the essay is sort of um an analysis of uh of the 2000 film bullet boy um but the in in a sort of much broader uh sort of um analytical context which i think is it seems to be the kind of direction you're pushing towards with the course too uh i wondered if you could sort of just talk through some of that kind of context uh, for the listeners like things like the uk film council uh and also kind of the McPherson report and the kind of how these things are a context for sure I think um mine and Sarita's interest um in actually pursuing this research was founded on I guess a collective dissatisfaction with what we understand now to be diversity mm. um in all its kind of various spheres and the reason being is because when you look at a film like kind of Bullet Boy or any other kind of film that's produced in the UK that purports to be diverse, a piece of kind of good diverse kind of cinema and has all this consecration and symbolism applied onto it. One has to immediately kind of consider what the rationale is for this, what kind of cultural relationships are being kind of sought after in the kind of film, but also what the production context is, what recruits and commandeers a film like that. 
Um, and there are various different guises we kind of go through to kind of look at this. Um, but the key thing that relates to all this is the concept of diversity. It's worth kind of mentioning that um, diversity is what I call an ideology, even a genre, had no real pedigree in popular imagination prior to New Labour. Mm. Um, it was very much a political construct that equally was born out of that moment in um, 1999 and the McPherson report into mm. the Steve Lawrence inquiry, um, which of course led to equality impact reports, but also this idea that public institutions in receipt of public funding should be doing all they can to encourage race relations and good diverse practice within the, all their operations. It's interesting that of the 73 or so recommendations that McPherson made, none of them actually refer to culture. Mm. But the cultural industries as they're becoming was the key site for the kind of implementation of diversity. Mm. And um, certainly in our research into the UK Film Council, diversity was at least had kind of everything and nothing quality to it. It was constantly kind of referenced in policy preamble and kind of mm. literature, while the actual reality of diversity was very, very kind of difficult to actually make being. Mm. So looking at a film like Bullet Boy, we try to kind of trace the historical, the political, the cultural, sociological discussions and compromises that were kind of made to actually produce the kind of film itself. Mm. And um, what we kind of found is that there was an amazing feature of contemporary diversity to recruit power within the alignments of difference. Mm. So we have a film in Bullet Boy that we think produces very, very prominent tropes of blackness, of youthhood, mm. of kind of race, of the whole kind of gangs discourse, but equally is being paraded and kind of celebrated as it was at the time as a wonderful exemplar of kind of good film, diverse film, film that is kind of progressive. Mm. There is a kind of strange, problematic tension mm. in there that we're trying to explore in the kind of film, both in the terms of the text and what the text is doing itself, mm. the diegesis, but also in a production context as well. You know, how the film is actually crafted and paraded and delivered. So I think it was described as cares with guns, which is yeah. obviously kind of a homage to um, Ken Loach's kind of film. Um, two very, very kind of different films. Yeah. And I couldn't see the relationship between both of them in terms of the ideologies of the films and what the films are trying to do. Kez is particularly about the education system mm. um, in Northern England in the kind of um, 60s and 70s, and Bullet Boy was about something very different. It didn't really refer to me to a particular working class experience or a particular crafting of kind of race in the context of institutions, in the context of kind of whiteness, in the context of any kind of oppression that may be kind of systematic. Mm. But equally, how it was kind of paraded as this amazing kind of film, which is about kind of how the UK Film Council and other institutions are performing kind of diversity, warranted a close examination, I think. Mm. Absolutely. It's, um, I quite liked when you, I mean, sort of connecting it into sort of conversations we've already had. Um, I quite, there's a line where you talk about the UK Film Council as, uh, this is, something I picked out because I thought it was quite a nice line a shift towards the US film oligopoly uh, and the way that there was a certain sort of maybe kind of um, attitude towards uh, British film before before that sort of like 97 moment that was um, aligned to a different sort of production and then you got a shift to do something slightly more Hollywoody. Um, afterwards, which was about kind of in institutional sort of changes uh, in the UK, but also it's interesting. I think that uh, I think you say that um, Bullet Boy was originally sort of like devised for, or the plan was to make it TV, and then it shifted uh, to being film. Like, and I think this is a sort of um, I don't know if tension is, is the right word, but a a uh, a division that that we that is explored a lot on the course and that we're going to go back and forth between sort of like why do you think I don't know why do you think it that that matters that kind of TV film relationship well if we think about TV the BBC in the context of public service broadcasting 
um, what that means. You know, you could go back to 1982 and the establishment of Channel 4 mm. with a particular remit. Um, it was founded as an idea that TV can serve a particular kind of social, cultural purpose. It can be a arena where identities can be crafted, can be understood. How we come to understand others um, is probably done through TV. Um, TV drama um, is a particular form of, um, I guess, what you call cultural epistemology. Mm. You know, how do we kind of know about other kind of cultures, how they kind of live, what their thoughts are, what their kind of feelings are. So TV has a very kind of powerful unifying property in that sense. So historically, what you call black film, again, a very kind of loaded kind of term, was always pursued through these means. You think about the films in the kind of early 80s, such as Babylon, uh, Pressure, uh, My Beautiful Laundrette, for instance. Mm. Into the 90s, there was always this relationship between institutions, be it the BBC or Channel 4, and the production of kind of film, mm. particularly kind of black film. Um, that's still the case now, but Bullet Boy was an interesting case because it wasn't actually meant to be a TV drama film, but they realized the potential for a standalone film mm. and um, got the UK Film Council involved, BBC Films as well, and some other production companies to craft what this was. Mm. Now, I think it's interesting because the way the film, again, was circulated is this is a film that's going to take us into an understanding of blackness in a particular kind of context in mm. London as well. Um, really kind of helped me and Sri to understand or comprehend what the agenda was in terms of diversity, but also in terms of the politics of race. Mm. Um, why they felt there'll be an audience for this film beyond mm. a more traditional kind of TV audience. Could it kind of transcend those kind of televisual kind of audiences and go somewhere else? Mm. So I think audience is really important for thinking about why films get kind of made, um, what the rationale is in being made as well. I think it's also because that's one. If we have the TV film kind of uh, relationship between the, you know, it's a form. It's kind of a formal relationship, I suppose. It was also the, the context in which you see it, and also the structures uh, in which things are, are produced. Uh, there are other sort of relationships going on as well, of course, because there's the there's you know, Ashley Walters um, mm. from a, a, the background of, you know, from music. He's into solo crew before, and kind of that was one of the the things that um, he's associated with, and was kind of maybe part of how the film was marketed. Mm. And yeah, I suppose I mean because then there's a few kind of like vectors going on there because there are there's that how because um, that's part of the it was almost like a kind of it feels because when you say cool britannia you you think of oasis <laughs> but it's interesting to think of like maybe so solo crew as being part of like mm. the the sort of marketable potential of cool britannia um i mean does and also i suppose um yeah i don't know does that did that come into yeah we certainly looked at um the relationship between let's say ashley walters and yeah. his notoriety as being remember so solo crew what they resented both culturally, um, politically as well. Mm. And um, him is a criterion of value mm. in the kind of film. So one can make associations and almost create a kind of horizon of expectation mm. with the film, with what actually represents that particular kind of time. Yeah. So um, I think marketing plays a huge role when we think about black cinema. That's not actually exclusive to black British cinema. Yeah, I mean, you look at um, the cinemas of um, of Black America, and yeah. they've always relied on this crossover between other kind of cultures and other kind of forms of cultural expression. Um, the black exploitation kind of films use soundtracks, yeah, as a way of kind of marketing. Um, I think, from what I have read, um, is it Superfly? I mean, one of the kind of um, biggest soundtracks ever. Yeah, yeah. Um, but equally, things like Boys in the Hood. Yeah. Um, relied on kind of using hip-hop artists emerging yeah. you know, as a way of kind of marketing the kind of film. So um, there's always been that relationship there. And I think certainly um, Bullet Boy utilizes the same strategies with Ashley Walters. Of course, he's a fantastic editor anyway. Yeah. But um, his notoriety and kind of cachet as being a recognized Black British star yeah. certainly kind of helped the film, I think, as well. 
Well, cause another so kind of plugging into that a bit the about sort of drawing on different kind of art forms uh, as that goes across. So you have, have music on, on, on one angle. Uh, the another and also thinking about this kind of um, Cool Britannia thing, like just occurred to me while you while you were talking there that kind of um steve mcqueen's like trajectory is interesting plotted against that because it's mm -hmm. you know it's coming from if you have you're talking there about film film and film slash tv uh, in the context of music like steve mcqueen comes out of uh, the art world like the kind of gallery art world uh and has now moved which is sort of like i mean he's not quite we don't think of him as being uh maybe uh, you know, a YBA young British artist in the same way he's not, which is interesting in itself. Uh, but he's, I'm sure, yeah, but he, but he comes out of the art world and then he's very much moved into the world of cinema. Like, um, I don't know, is that a different sort of because there are, I mean, there was, there was so much the production and marketing of artwork is is so, uh, you know, his own sort of set of rules which seems to work slightly differently to those of film, but. I don't know how does that that sort of uh, that context. What, you know, what do you think about that trajectory that the McQueen's had? I mean, McQueen is a really interesting figure um, in the sense that he has seemed to make a very very smooth transition from essentially art cinema into Hollywood mainstream within the steps of I think two or three um, films. Mm. So you go back to Hunger. I mean, I think Hunger is one of the most outstanding uh, British films ever. Mm. A fantastic film in terms of cinematic devices, in terms of kind of politics, its kind of richness, the images. Um, but the film relies quite heavily on an art cinema ethos. Mm. We think that there's some of the scenes there. I mean, the most notable one is the kind of long take in the corridor of the May cinema, mm. where we see the urine come Sorry, from the quite telling that you said cinema instead of prison Sorry? <laughs> you said cinema instead of prison there which is quite interesting <laughs> the maze cinema <laughs> so the urine coming out of the cells yeah that unify and tell us a lot about I guess community within the cinema about um, also how Steve try to form a relationship between his own experiences as a young black person in the 80s and seeing Bobby Sands' image on the news every single evening. What that tried to say about his interest in people who he thought were being oppressed under Thatcherism mm. as a political ideology. That's what makes the film, I think, a overtly political film. Mm. Um, alongside the wonderful imagery, the art cinema ethos, um, the subject matter as well. Mm. But um, how he's continued his trajectory has been very interesting because I found a shame his next film to be quite problematic because mm. it seemed quite far away mm. from his cinematic um, identity. Mm. Um, and then 12 is a Slave has some amazing scenes in it, but I think the whole ideology of the film for me raised a lot of, kind of questions mm. um, I wasn't quite convinced with that moment when you see Brad Pitt come in mm. with his golden mane of hair to rescue the situation yeah. um, I think that told a lot about the Hollywood apparatus yeah. and maybe some kind of compromises that could have or needed to be kind of made to bring that in for instance yeah, because his his production company were involved in the Plan B, in the I film. think, yeah. yeah. I mean, that may sound quite crude, but um, it was a very, very particular moment in the film where those in cinema thought, well, it's Brad Pitt, yeah. all of a sudden. And it's weird because the film seems to advocate a kind of liberalism, mm. uh, which is represented in the Brad Pitt kind of character. And um, that, for me, is quite interesting as a kind of way of kind of shaping meaning to the film. Yeah, and of course there was the um, wasn't I think it was the Italian marketing of the film featured. Oh uh, yes, featured like <laughs> the, the, the image they 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 centered on it was the poster which had Brad Pitt kind of running through a field on the, mm. on the, uh, as the as the main image, with everyone everyone else in the film relegated to the status of kind of like subsidiary characters, 
as if it was this. Yeah, you know, I think Brad Pitt Brad Brad film. Brad Pitt it must be on screen for I don't know something. Is it even five minutes or something? Mm. Uh, well, actually, the same thing happened um, in the early noughties. If you remember the film East is East, yeah. Um, when it had his American release uh, through Mimorax, you see the poster that they produced. Um, it has the white girlfriend character as <laughs> the kind of central um, figure in the poster, yeah. and these small Asian faces you can barely kind of see in this kind of window of a house on the poster. <laughs> so. It's not the first time you've kind of seen that whitewashing, essentially, of kind yeah. of central characters. <laughs> I, um, of course, uh, Stephen Queen's Widow's out tomorrow. I don't think, I don't think, uh, neither of us have seen it yet. But uh, the um, you actually missed it at the festival, yeah, uh, this year. But uh, well, yeah, in cinemas tomorrow, so we can <laughs> maybe you can reprise and <laughs> do, do a sweet two on two extra on, on on Stephen Queen's Widow's. But that's another sort of interesting um, sort of example of this relationship between different forms because he because that's based uh, on Lyndall uh, Pant TV series mm-hmm. uh, that McQueen sort of saw as a kid and so it ha- and he I mean that's kind of actually two of the sort of like the, the vectors we're talking about so you, you have the relationship between uh, film and TV so he's taking what was TV sort of content o- over to, over to you know, the cinema screen uh, but also he's taking it across the Atlantic, like almost there, uh, which is, uh, that's kind of, yeah, that's kind of two of the, the because the, another thing, you know, the, the shift of context from UK to US, like, because we can't talk about what that, um, what that means to the film, because we haven't seen it. Mm. <laughs> um, but then another thing with McQueen is also he's, um, he's, even as you know, kind of his art, his, his artwork, kind of like from very early on. Although it was made for gallery context, it was always using cinematic tropes and references, like mm. the kind of Buster Keaton. And so, yeah, it's kind of. I mean, the. And I suppose another figure in the context that, like John O'Comfort, kind of like uses, um, is another sort of like. You talk, yeah, he's a black British artist who works very much in the medium of, of film, but has had a, had a, a different sort of trajectory. Yeah, so I actually was talking to John yeah. um, a couple of weeks ago at the London Film Festival, and um, I was compelled to ask him uh, that same question. Yeah, I mean, I think he's a fantastic filmmaker. Um, I think um, he's done some amazing work um, over the last kind of 20, 30 years that, again, doesn't always get the kind of recognition I think it deserves. Yeah both in our thinkings around cinema history, but also in pedagogy, in our education. Um, And thinking about someone who exists quite comfortably in a gallery context, in gallery space, he seems very much at home there. Um, Of course, he did the Stuart Hall project a few years ago, which I thought was an amazing documentary just. And um, I think that introduced him to a new audience who may have been kind of familiar with his work in the 80s and 90s as well. And thinking in comparison to Steve McQueen, who also emerged from a very kind of similar art context, I did say to him, well, when can we see John O'Comfort doing something like A Hunger or 12 Years a Slave or A Widow using those sensibilities, you know, in the kind of mainstream um, or something similar? And he said to me that, yeah, that could be an option, but he would imagine that to do that would involve a huge amount of compromise mm. in terms of taking what he does into the 90 or two hour form. Mm. But also once you become involved in that machinery of the film industry in terms of screenwriters and producers and thinking around distribution and audiences all of a sudden, mm. the Yeah it would require a kind of compromise that he wasn't quite convinced he was prepared to make at this stage, which I completely understood. Mm. But also, I'm still imagining what a John O'Connor <laughs> film would look like. Yeah. It's it's really interesting, isn't it, to, to think that he, at the moment, I suppose, because he, he's re- reached a certain uh, state of, well, a certain level of kind of... Um, uh, renown and sort of uh, within the the art world that he feels that he can 
that he's not I mean that he must feel limitations within the gallery sort of like context I suppose but then maybe he, he, he doesn't maybe he feels that he doesn't have to sort of adjust what he wants to do you know for the for the sake of like you know it being on show in an exhibition context well maybe I think he derives satisfaction from just being able to have the freedom yeah. and liberation to kind of do what he wants in terms of his practice within that space which is a lot more maybe permissive but it, but than, um, yeah but, it, but it's not a space that's free of market forces uh, mm. it's, it's it's um but it's certainly yeah, there is there are the, the pressures of uh sales and all, many of the same sort of pressures that you have in, in a cinema context but they're, they're maybe just differently organized but it's but then i don't know maybe maybe having not tried to make work in, mm. <laughs> in either context i'm not sure i just i just find it it's interesting in itself that he, that he you know, does find mm. that a more permissive space i think maybe also let's consider he has been at the top of his game for 30 yeah, 35 years yeah so his notoriety probably allows him a lot more freedoms within that context and maybe someone emerging yeah, have as well. Well, so <laughs> it sort of um, reminds me, sort of jumping back to McQueen. There was a he was on. He was being interviewed on the radio yesterday uh, about his sort of taste in music, actually, which is another <laughs> like formal, really? mm. formal sort of uh, back and forth. Uh, but he mentioned uh, being asked. I can't. I actually can't remember. Forgetting the precise direction that it happened in, but basically being asked to do a music video for Kanye West. Uh, wow. And he, but I think it was something like he he agreed to do it. I think it was all, he was asked to do it for all day, uh, and only agreed to do it on the condition that he could do this kind of like two part thing, which was a, a, a second sort of like more introspective tune. Uh, and so I think the, the video is like this one very sort of like slightly more conventional kind of like hip hop music video, and then the, the the next half of it is this very kind of introspective sort of. Um, section, but basically, he he only agreed to do it uh, if he could do if he could have that control over it, and it ended up with with Kanye West not deleting this second song, which he later dis was later decided was too introspective. So he you know, he's at the point of uh, McQueen's at the point now where he can he can have an influence on the music world. Wow, goodness! Yeah, um, it's interesting you mention Widows because I've been thinking a lot. Obviously, haven't read the reviews of the kind of film and what the film's about. I can't not help thinking about um, a film called Set It Off. Mm. Um, 1996, it's a, I guess we call a black American film mm. about four women who decide to rob banks. So mm. there's a similar theme yeah. to this as well. Um, it was described as a kind of ghetto film in the same sense as Boys in the Hood, uh, New Jack City, there's other kind of films as well. It's got um, Jada Pinkett in it, yeah, and um, Queen Latifah. Wow. And um, I actually pulled that and watched it on the weekend, <laughs> and um, it's really kind of um, created the appetite for kind of watching Widows because there's so many correlations there in yeah. terms of having four women, yeah, um, who are representing something that kind of goes against, I guess, a normalisation or common sense mm. around being a criminal or a robber. Mm. So it kind of dismantles the kind of heteronormativity mm. of that particular kind of form of criminality. So um, for that reason, it's a very, very physical film. Mm. Thinking back to 1996, I mean, of course, in 1996, we're having the same conversation we're having now about gender equality, the Me Too campaign as well. Yeah. I think from what I've read, a lot of widows refers to this yeah. in terms of the mere presence of kind of women in these kind of roles in Hollywood. Yeah but also the roles they're kind of playing yeah. is a step in the right direction. But equally, Set It Off was doing similar things in 1996 as well. Yeah. But maybe we weren't packaged that way because we weren't that kind of moment we're having a conversation about yeah. these things. So it'll be interesting to make a comparative analysis once I yeah. see what those about those things. A double bell. Mm. Watch them slide by side. <laughs> to watch one before the other. Yeah. Um, okay, we've got about 10 minutes left and there's, uh, there's kind of two two sort of broader things that I want to ask you about um, and I think probably the um, the first one is kind of what 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 next your projects what you're kind of working on at the moment what you're because I think you're, you're you're working on some book projects which are kind of like draw these into kind of longer narratives and I wanted to ask 
you know, ask how's it going with that and what can, what can we expect? Um, it's definitely going. Um, <laughs> so it's a really bad question to ask someone who's running a The first one um, I'm working on is um, a book called Black Film British Cinema, which um, is the second iteration of a book that was first released in 1988. There was a conference held at the Institute of Contemporary Arts which drew together people working at the intersections of academia, film, art as well, mm. to really have a conversation about what it meant to be black and British in the context of film. Mm. So it referred to the works of Paul Gilroy, uh, Kabina Mercer, Stuart Hall, mm. others as well, Jude Giovanni, for instance. And um, we did a conference uh, in May 2017 mm. um, remembering that particular moment, but also bringing in new scholars working on mm. this to think about what these themes mean 20, 30 years later. I think bits of that are on YouTube, aren't they? You think you can watch some of it? Or? Yeah, I think you can watch both the keynotes um, yeah. by Sarita Malik and Kara Keeling mm. and some of the panels as well on mm. the YouTube channel. So it was a fantastic couple of days, really retiring, but fantastic. <laughs> so um, myself and Anmik Saha Goldsmith, who helped me run the conference, we now... Um, working on the second iteration of that book. Oh, cool. Which will essentially kind of draw on some of the papers from that kind of um, conference that we thought helped create a nice composite of different perspectives in thinking around black cinema from policy to institutional frameworks to the texts themselves mm. to the use of kind of data and the workforce. Mm. Excellent. And the second one? And the second one is a kind of labour of love for me. So I'm referring back to my PhD work um, and more recent work I've done on the idea of British urban cinema. Mm. And basically this book looks at what we can mean when we talk about British urban cinema, um, where it comes from. It refers a lot to the work I've done around Bullet Boy, but other films Mm. as well. Um, But it tries to go beyond a mere sociological understanding of this. And actually gives an appreciation to what the texts themselves are doing. Mm. Um, one of my pet hates about film studies, especially ones that try to engage with kind of race and blackness, um, is that it can often descend into sociology too quickly mm. and neglect an actual analysis of what the texts themselves are kind of doing, what mm. they kind of mean, essentially analyzing the film on their own terms. Yeah. Um, so, one example of this is often we can have a film screening about, let's say, The Big Short, and mm. then immediately have a conversation about capitalism. Mm. We're actually thinking about, well, hang on, there's a film here, what's the yeah, film yeah, doing yeah. itself? So my approach is trying to actually advance and give some weight and value to what those films themselves mean. Yeah. And, but also looking through the lens of architecture, through the lens of apparel, through the lens of grime music as well, yeah. which um, I think has massive relationships with what we then saw in the films of Noel Clark in yeah. more recent films as well. Um, and to that end, I've been reading loads of stuff on grime music. Yeah, uh, I'm a huge fan anyway, but a book was released last year called Inner City Pressure yeah. uh, by Dan Hancock, yeah, um, yeah. which is an amazing book. And again, it's a kind of odyssey into kind of grime that goes beyond the music yeah. and looks at kind of policy, policing, culture, gentrification. And all those things are conducive to me thinking about how a text operates yeah. under the kind of um, the genre of British urban cinema. Excellent. Friend of the show, Dan Hancock. So. Yeah, he's been here before. Is he? <laughs> I know he's not, he's, 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 yeah, hopefully he'll be on at some point. Uh, but um, yeah, we'll, we'll link to that too. Mm. Well, yeah, looking forward to that. Uh, and well, also, um, maybe in that case, just as we as we sort of in our, in our last sort of five minutes, uh, with that very sort of um, very correct sort of um, reminder to kind of focus on on, on the text. Uh, I think um, I think recently you were talking about having we began talking about London Film Festival, but um, a film that we didn't talk about is Blind Spotting. Uh, maybe um, which. I, th- I believe you saw and, uh, and enjoyed. Yeah, it was a fantastic film. Actually, I don't think it actually was part of the festival. Actually, oh, right. I think it was shown during the festival fortnight, but actually wasn't part oh, of the okay. official program. So, I called it at the Curzon Soho, I think, on the second or third day of the festival. Yeah. Um, 
but I've been interested in it since I saw the trailer um, yeah. a few weeks prior. It's a wonderful examination of race and policing in the States. That's so relevant to our discussions now yeah. about what's happened in America. Um, framed around a black American who has come out of prison and is trying to reintegrate into society um, and witnesses um, a police officer shooting down an armed black person mm. and dealing with that on a very kind of emotional level mm. alongside other questions about identity and reappropriation. So for yeah. instance, his best friend is a white person who appropriates certain forms of kind of black culture in terms of his language and vernacular, uh, his use of the N-word, for instance, as well. Mm. So it really kind of dissected those relationships, but also talked about how one particular kind of person deals with that experience, mm. deals with being kind of racialized, and the daily reality of being a black person in that arena yeah. alongside policing. I think it I, is it on general release now. I don't really. I didn't really understand how. I'm not sure if it's still showing now. Yeah. Um, but um, it got released, I think, two or three weeks ago. Oh right, I just, just missed it. Yeah. Um, but it's a fantastic film, and um, it's also very lyrical as well. Um, yeah. It relies on rap music and kind of hip hop for kind of delivering kind of messages. It's yeah. quite metaphysical in parts as well. Yeah. Um, almost dreamlike sometimes. Yeah. So it's got loads of different kind of tonalities. That kind of coalesce, kind of deliver a particular message. Who's the director? Goodness, it passes me. However, <laughs> I think the two central actors were involved in the screenwriting. Okay, so it's quite kind of that's an interesting sort of like collaborative sort of thing because I don't I, because does um has Ashley Walters sort of moved on? Does he does he ever write? Ashley Walters. I think, from what I understand, he was involved in the Top Boy series yeah. beyond just being an actor there. Yeah. And last time I read, I think there was going to be an American iteration of that with Drake being involved oh, wow. somehow. I think I read it around six months ago. I'm not quite sure what the status is now. Yeah. But um, I think Channel 4 decided not to do a third series. Yeah. And I think they were trying to look at seeing if he picked up somewhere in America, yeah. which I think it may have been. Because, well, I mean, that's a whole, whole other sort of... Um strand to this sort of US UK back to kind of like how you know kind of grime being kind of picked up by kind of like American kind of uh, not just musicians but kind of um, you know, people kind of artists sort of like seeing as this kind of kind of you know kind of urgent sort of thing that like mm. it's sort of part of the kind of the dialogue between the two like yeah I mean I, does, I can't remember if, if Dan's book sort of talk, it talks about that too or it's just kind of much about the U UK context um, from what I remember, Dan's book is very much rooted in the UK, yeah, um, particularly London as well. But um, you can make connotations and kind of references to the American situation as well very, very kind of quickly in terms of the production kind of cultures, the independence of the music as well, but also its cultural significance. Yeah, I mean, this is essentially forms of music that are kind of derived from underground pirate stations and from housing estates. Um, just as hip hop emerges from kind of projects in Harlem, so there are instant um, relationships you can come out with both yeah, approaches. Yeah, it's really interesting to see how that transposes into the context of, of Drake doing it. Like, <laughs> <laughs> remains to be seen. Um, thank you so much, Chloe. Uh, it's really been a pleasure. Talking. Thank you. It's uh, thanks so much for coming on. Uh, well, as I said, uh, we'll we'll link to all of the things as many things as, <laughs> as we can uh, that we discussed today on the, the Sweet 212 Twitter. That's at Sweet Sweet 212. Uh, and also um, follow Clive at uh, CJ and uh, CJ and Wonka. Uh, I think it's, it's that, is that your Twitter handle? CJ Nwonka. Nwonka. Yeah. Um, yeah, so it's all, all one. All one. All one. Uh, no underscores or anything. Uh, I've been Tom Overson. Uh, this has been Sweet 212 on, on Resonance 104.4 FM. Uh, next week, uh, Juliet um, is beginning, a, I think, a three-part series on the cultural legacy of the, the First World War, which is going to go between um, different countries on, in Europe uh, and look at the, the impact that it had uh, and hopefully sort of undo some of the... Um, sort of the kinds of analysis of the first world war we're we're seeing at the moment um and uh i'll be back in december i think um thanks very much thanks again clive and uh thanks for listening
This program has been brought to you by Resonance 104.4 FM. If you liked what you heard and want to support our work, please make a donation at fundraiser.resonance.fm.